Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Previously on Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. In December of 1844, a 17-year-old girl named Ellen G. Harmon was at a prayer meeting when she received a vision. She saw a group of people ascending a high and narrow path. Some of the people fell off the path into darkness, but Jesus beckoned the people toward a glorious heavenly realm whose marvels Ellen was shown. This was her first vision, and she went on to receive more than 2,000 revelations. This led to her becoming the co-founder and prophetess of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, under her married name of Ellen G. White. So who was Ellen G. White? What did her visions disclose? And was she a genuine prophetess? So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week, we're going to go into analysis mode and see what the perspectives of faith and reason have to say about the prophecies of Ellen White. You're listening to episode 230 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're evaluating the claims of Seventh-day Adventist founder Ellen G. White to be a prophet of God. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Seventh-day Adventist founder Ellen G. White reported receiving visions from God. It's estimated she received more than 2,000 of them. She also claimed that her writings were divinely inspired and contained important counsels of God. Was Ellen G. White a genuine prophetess? Did she really receive visions from God? And were her writings really divinely inspired? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. And Jimmy, I want to recall that this is a patron's episode, right? Yes, uh, one of our patrons named Elliot Gentleman uh, was very generous and donates at a level that allowed him to pick an episode topic, and so this is what we agreed upon. Uh, last episode, we talked about Ellen G. White's life, including her visions and writings, so listeners can go back and listen to episode 229 for more information on those. Now it's time to go into analysis mode and see what we can discover. I want to point out that, as we said last time, I don't conclude that a seer is true or false based on their religious affiliation. Although I'm Catholic, I've done previous episodes in which I've identified Catholic seers as false visionaries, like in episode 123 on Father Michel Rodrigue, and I've done episodes where I've concluded that someone was a true visionary even though they weren't Catholic, like in episode 44 on John Hendricks, the Tennessee prophet. God loves all his children and can talk to anybody. I also hope that Adventists who may be listening will see that I'm striving to be fair with Ellen White. I want to be charitable. I'm not taking cheap shots. I'm using a lot of primary sources with direct quotations. I point out where arguments have been made against Ellen that I either don't think work or that at least aren't conclusive. And I won't be using arguments of the form, we have a disagreement on doctrine, so this must be false. So. I'm striving to be as fair as possible. All right, let's begin with what theories are there about Ellen Gould White as a prophetess? From the reason perspective, we need to consider the source of Ellen White's prophecies. Could they have a purely natural source or do they have a preternatural source? We'll also have some matters uh, at the end to look at from the faith perspective. But before we do that, I'd like to look at a couple of preliminary matters 
from the faith perspective that will help further our discussion. Okay, let's take a preliminary look at the matter from the faith perspective. What should we cover here? In 1978, the then Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, now the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith in Rome, issued a document to give bishops guidance in discerning private revelations and whether they're genuinely from God. We discussed this document in depth in episode 84 on private revelation, so listeners can go back and review that for a detailed discussion. But one of the things that the document did was list positive and negative criteria that should be taken into consideration when evaluating a reported vision. The positive criteria, the ones that would lend support to the idea that a reported revelation was from God, were A. Moral certitude, or at least great probability, of the existence of the event acquired by means of a serious investigation. B. Particular circumstances relative to the existence and to the nature of the event, that is to say, 1. Personal qualities of the subject or of the subjects, in particular, psychological equilibrium, honesty, and rectitude of moral life, sincerity and habitual docility towards ecclesiastical authority, the capacity to return to a normal regimen of life of faith, etc. 2. As regards revelation, true theological and spiritual doctrine and immune from error. And 3. Healthy devotion and abundant and constant spiritual fruit, for example, spirit of prayer, conversion, testimonies of charity, etc. Meanwhile, the negative criteria, the ones that would lend support to the idea that a reported revelation was not from God, were A. Manifest error concerning the event B. Doctrinal errors attributed to God himself or to the Blessed Virgin Mary or to some saint in their manifestations, taking into account, however, the possibility that the subject might have added, even unconsciously, purely human elements or some error of the natural order to an authentic supernatural revelation. C. Evidence of a search for profit or gain strictly connected to the event. D. Gravely immoral acts committed by the subject or his or her followers when the event occurred or in connection with it. E. Psychological disorder or psychopathic tendencies in the subject that with certainty influenced on the presumed supernatural event or psychosis, collective hysteria, or other things of this kind. We'll come back to some of these criteria later in our discussion, but with that as background, I'd like to look at a few objections that one could raise from the faith perspective that I don't think are conclusive one way or the other, just so we can get these out of the way. These are the date of the Great Disappointment, when Millerite said Christ would return by October 22nd, 1844, and he didn't, and also Ellen's interpretation of what happened on this date. Let's talk about the fact that Seventh-day Adventism grew out of Millerism, and Millerites had tried to set the date for the Second Coming. Mark 13.32 says that no man knows the day or the hour, so they could be accused of violating a biblical teaching against date setting. Would that show Ellen's prophecies were false? No, it wouldn't. Uh, in the first place, Mark 13.32 has been widely misunderstood. If you read especially the beginning of Mark 13, you'll see that there is one question under discussion, and it isn't the second coming. At the beginning of the chapter, Jesus predicts that the Jerusalem temple will be destroyed, and the disciples ask him when that will happen and what 
will be the sign that the temple is about to be destroyed. They are not asking about the second coming. In fact, at this point, the disciples don't even have the idea that there will be a second coming. They're not expecting Jesus to die on a cross. They're not expecting him to rise from the dead. They're not expecting him to ascend to heaven. And they're not expecting him to return from heaven in a second coming. The second coming is just not part of the mental map of the disciples at this point. So that's not what they're asking about. They're asking about one subject only. When will the temple be destroyed? And so that is what Jesus is talking about in the rest of Mark 13. He is not talking about the end of the world, but the destruction of the temple. And what Mark 13.32 is saying is that no man knew the day or the hour that the temple would be destroyed. So I don't think that you can use this verse as a biblical proof text to argue that it's impossible to determine when the second coming will happen. The second coming is just not being discussed in this verse. Does that mean you think that it is possible to determine when Christ will return? No. Uh, one of the things that Jesus stresses repeatedly is that his final coming will be like a thief in the night, something that people, or at least most people, won't be expecting. Furthermore, the track record of people trying to predict the second coming is absolutely abysmal. Over the past 2,000 years, numerous people have tried to predict it, and so far, all the predictions have failed. So I think that predicting the, the timing of the second coming is not a good idea. But I don't think that we can accuse Millerites of violating an express commandment in Scripture in trying to do so. Furthermore, the initial views of the Millerites and the later views of Ellen White are not the same thing. What do you mean by that? How are they different? Well, William Miller's associates predicted that the second coming would occur on October 22nd, 1844, but that's not what Ellen claimed in her prophecies. She may have initially accepted the view that Jesus would return then, but she was a 16-year-old girl at the time and relied on what she'd heard. Her first vision didn't occur until after the Great Disappointment, and her visions did not endorsed the idea that the second coming occurred in 1844. Instead, she came to believe that Jesus finished purifying the outer sanctuary of God's temple in heaven, and that he had moved on to activity in the inner sanctuary. That's definitely not a subject that's discussed in Scripture. And so, there's definitely not a scriptural prohibition against trying to predict when an event like that would happen. I thus don't think that we can accuse Ellen White's visions of violating biblical teaching against setting a date for an event that the Bible doesn't even mention. Does that mean you think she's all clear on this front, that she's not doing anything problematic in this area? What about her own interpretation of what happened on October 22nd, 1844? Well, I think it's problematic. I, I don't think that her interpretation of Daniel 8 is reasonable. Both William Miller's understanding of the sanctuary as earth and the Seventh-day Adventist position that the sanctuary is the outer portion of God's temple in heaven are not what the audience would have understood. As non-Adventist scholars of all persuasions recognize, and as a Jew living when the book of Daniel was published would recognize, the sanctuary is an obvious reference to God's temple on earth. This is made clear by the angel Gabriel when he tells Daniel the identities of the ram, the goat, and the horns in Daniel chapter 8. They represent the Medo-Persian Empire, the Grecian Empire, 
Alexander the Great and Antiochus Epiphanes. This is all completely obvious, and since Antiochus did stop 2,300 morning and evening sacrifices before Judah Maccabee restored the temple, it's obvious that the earthly sanctuary or temple is what's being discussed. So I think both William Miller and Seventh-day Adventists, including Ellen White, have a mistaken understanding of this text. However, even here, I have to be cautious, because a biblical text can have meanings on more than one level. So I can't rule out in principle that Ellen White picked up on a secondary meaning in Daniel 8. So I'm not willing to write her off simply because of this, and we need to keep looking at the evidence. Okay, what can we say about Ellen Gould White from the reason perspective? Let's consider the possibility that her writings had a natural rather than a supernatural explanation. What natural explanations might one propose? There are a number of possibilities. Um, a general category of explanations that could explain her visionary experiences would be that she was in an altered state of consciousness and that this altered state produced the visions. The question would be, what was the altered state? And there are a number of possibilities, including epilepsy, hypnosis, and mental illness. Another possibility is that she was not in an altered state of consciousness and her reports of visions were due to things like innocent imagination, conscious lying or hoaxing, and a mix of the two, with her sometimes innocently imagining things and sometimes consciously hoaxing. Then let's talk about these possibilities. What about the idea that she was an epileptic and that this produced her visions? You'll recall from last episode that when she was nine years old, a girl from Ellen's school threw a rock at her and hit her in the nose. This is similar to the head injury that Harriet Tubman received, which we talked about in episode 211, when someone threw a two-pound iron weight at Harriet and hit her in the head. In both cases, people have wondered if these head injuries could have caused temporal lobe epilepsy that then resulted in the visionary experiences they had. While head injuries can cause temporal lobe epilepsy, I'm hesitant to dismiss people's religious experiences by appealing to this cause. There's a tendency in skeptical circles to look at people who have had visions and say, oh, this person must have had epilepsy, even when there's no evidence that this is the case. For example, some have tried to say that St. Paul's visions in the Bible were due to epilepsy, but we don't have evidence that Paul had epilepsy. So I'm suspicious of theories that try to reduce religious experiences to medical pathologies, especially when we don't have other evidence that the pathology existed. In Harriet Tubman's case, the head injuries she sustained did have a long-lasting effect on her. As we discussed in that episode, she would have spells where she would simply zone out for a few minutes in the middle of doing things before resuming normal activity. And that is a symptom of some forms of epilepsy. Specifically, that sudden absence of attention to your surroundings is what is known as an absence seizure or a petite mal seizure, in contrast to a grand mal seizure, which involves violent muscle contractions. So I think it's reasonable to conclude that Harriet Tubman did have temporal lobe epilepsy based on her injury. And what about Ellen White? Does the evidence support her having epilepsy? It's been proposed, including by Adventist physicians. However, the claim has also been critiqued. Uh, we'll have a link to a page 
from the Ellen G. White estate in which an Adventist professor of neurology looked at the issue, and he concluded that the evidence for epilepsy was lacking. Also, in 1983, the LNG White Estate commissioned a panel of nine physicians, including three neurologists, to look into the matter. And they concluded, The diagnosis of a complex partial seizure disorder, temporal lobe or psychomotor epilepsy, is often difficult even with the help of modern techniques such as electroencephalography and video recording. Thus, the establishment of such a diagnosis retrospectively in a person who died almost 70 years ago, and concerning whom no medical records exist, can be at best only speculative, tenuous, and controversial. The recent articles and presentation that suggest that Ellen White's visions and writings were the result of a complex partial seizure disorder contain many inaccuracies. Ambiguous reasoning and misapplication of facts have resulted in misleading conclusions. This committee was appointed to evaluate the hypothesis that Ellen G. White had complex partial seizures. After a careful review of the autobiographical and biographical material available, considered in the light of the present knowledge of this type of seizure, it is our opinion that 1. There is no convincing evidence that Ellen G. White suffered from any type of epilepsy, and 2. There is no possibility that complex partial seizures could account for Mrs. White's visions or for her role in the development of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Now, I'm not a neurologist, but after reading about the matter, it seems to me that the argument for Ellen having epilepsy is weak. Uh, The committee's assessment that the articles making the epilepsy allegations contained inaccuracies and ambiguous reasoning and misapplication of facts seems correct from my review of them. And the evidence used to try to show epilepsy in them is thin. I thus don't think that we can simply attribute Ellen's visions to epilepsy, and we need to continue to look at other possibilities. If someone did have a vision due to epilepsy, would that mean it had no value? Not necessarily. It would certainly raise questions about the vision, but that wouldn't necessarily deprive it of all value. Speaking momentarily from the faith perspective, when someone has a vision, they're there is something going on in the brain that's different than normal. And I can't rule out that an abnormal brain state like epilepsy or an epileptic seizure could be associated with a genuinely supernatural vision, either with the seizure causing the person to reach out to God and receive a vision, or with God reaching into the person and the seizure accompanying the vision. So, you know, let's say that someone has an epileptic seizure and at the same time they have a vision. And then afterwards, based on what they saw, they tell me what's going to happen to me in the future, and it turns out that they're right. What they say does come to pass. Further, assume that what they say is very unexpected, so it can't be chalked up to random chance. In that case, I'd have to conclude that the information they got about the future was something they either got paranormally as a result of psychic functioning or supernaturally from a genuine vision even if it was accompanied by an epileptic seizure. Either way, I've gotten genuine information about the future, and I have to take the person's vision seriously, despite the fact that they were associated with epilepsy. So I wouldn't rule out someone's visions just because they were associated with epilepsy. Epilepsy would definitely raise a question in my mind about whether they were purely natural or not, but if there was supporting evidence of a paranormal or supernatural cause, then I'd still need to take them seriously. 
What about the idea that Ellen's visions were due to hypnosis? Hypnosis was called mesmerism in Ellen's day after Anton Mesmer, the guy who popularized it. And it was even less well understood then than it is now. People attributed a bunch of exaggerated stuff to it. Some of Ellen's contemporaries did claim that she was mesmerized into having visions, and Ellen herself took on this charge. In responding to it, she said, Soon it was reported all around that the visions were the result of mesmerism, and many Adventists were ready to believe and circulate the report. A physician who was a celebrated mesmerizer told me that my views were mesmerism, that I was a very easy subject and that he could mesmerize me and give me a vision. I told him that the Lord had shown me in vision that mesmerism was from the devil, from the bottomless pit, and that it would soon go there with those who continued to use it. I then gave him liberty to mesmerize me if he could. He tried for more than half an hour, resorting to different operations, and then gave it up. By faith in God, I was able to resist his influence so that it did not affect me in the least. If I had a vision in meeting, many would say it was excitement and that someone mesmerized me. Then I would go away alone in the woods where no eye or ear but God's could see or hear and pray to him, and he would sometimes give me a vision there. I then rejoiced and told them what God had revealed to me alone, where no mortal could influence me. But I was told by some that I mesmerized myself. Oh, thought I, has it come to this, that those who honestly go to God alone to plead his promises and to claim his salvation are to be charged with being under the foul and soul-damning influence of mesmerism? Do we ask our kind father in heaven for bread only to receive a stone or a scorpion? I don't have as negative a view of hypnosis as Ellen did in this passage, but, you know, we talked about hypnosis in episode 52, so people can go back and listen to that for my view. But I do agree with Ellen that her visions were not produced by hypnotism. There's no evidence that people put her under hypnosis. I think this charge is just a product of the fact that in the 19th century, hypnosis was less well understood than it is today, and people treated all kinds of magical effects to it. So it was an easy explanation to reach for if you really didn't have any evidence. And I think we can set this hypnosis theory aside. Then what about mental illness? Is there evidence that White may have been mentally ill? Here we get to a controversial area. Despite the difficulty in diagnosing a person who has been dead for more than a century and who can't be psychiatrically evaluated today, there have been claims that Ellen suffered from a form of mental illness. For example, in his book, Ellen G. White, A Psychobiography, psychologist Stephen Daly uh, argues that she did likely have some mental health issues. He acknowledges that he can't formally diagnose her at a distance, but he argues that the historical evidence suggests that she did have some personality issues that would be classified as mental health issues today. However, even if he's right about that, these personality issues would not cause her to hallucinate. They're not the right kind of mental disorders for that, and they would not result in her experiencing visions. Consequently, uh, we'll set aside the question of Ellen's mental health. Daly's suspicions are only that, just suspicions, since he couldn't clinically evaluate her. And in any event, they wouldn't cause her to have visions. We've now covered the altered states of consciousness, epilepsy, hypnosis, and mental illness that might be proposed as explanations for Ellen's visions. What about other natural causes like innocent imagination or hoaxing? What does the evidence say here? People can definitely produce visions that are products of their imagination. In some cases, this will be purely innocent, a 
a person will imagine a visionary experience and they'll mistakenly attribute it to God rather than to their imagination. In other cases, the person may know that it's their imagination and yet they pass it on as a genuine vision. In that case, they are consciously lying to others about the experience or hoaxing them. Whether or not a person was innocent or guilty in what they reported about their experience is a secondary question, but what both have in common is that it was the human imagination rather than God that was responsible for the content of the vision. So before attempting to assess any guilt or innocence, we need to see what we can find out about the accuracy of the visions. Did they display knowledge that was both accurate and something that Ellen didn't already know? If they did, then that would support the idea that something more than just imagination was at work. And if they didn't contain those things, that would suggest it was just imagination, whether innocent or otherwise. How do Ellen's visions fare from that perspective? Did they contain knowledge that was both accurate and that she didn't already know? There's no single answer to this, but it has been noted that Ellen's visions were often reactive in nature. That is, they often confirmed ideas that other people already had been discussing rather than proposing new ideas. She was not the originator of the idea that Christ moved from one compartment of the heavenly temple to another in 1844. That was Hiram Edson, as we discussed last episode. And she wasn't the one who insisted on observing Saturday as a weekly Sabbath. That was Rachel Oaks Preston, who had previously been a Seventh-day Baptist. People also noted that what she said in her visions and writings tended to mirror the views of her husband James, at least during his lifetime. In her testimonies for the church, Ellen herself noted, Many excused their disregard of the testimonies by saying, Sister White is influenced by her husband. The testimonies are molded by his spirit and judgment. Some also accused her of basing things on what other people told her. For example, she wrote, In some cases, it has been represented that in giving a testimony for churches or individuals, I have been influenced to write as I did by letters received from members of the church. And she defended herself against this charge, writing, Suppose, someone make it appear, incorrectly, however, that I was influenced to write as I did by letters received from members of the church. How was it with the Apostle Paul? She then points out that St. Paul wrote 1 Corinthians in response to a letter he received from the Corinthians. So her own writings could equally well respond to things that people had written to her. But the overall pattern of her adopting ideas in her visions and writings that other people had already proposed, whether they were Hiram Edson, Rachel Oaks Preston, her husband James, or others, does at least raise a question about whether she was genuinely in communication with God or whether she was just responding to and in some cases adopting other people's ideas. However, this is just a question at this point and not something that firmly determines things one way or the other. Then let's look at Ellen's predictions themselves. Do Seventh-day Adventists point to predictions she made that would go beyond random chance? As part of my research for this episode, I did a search on Ellen G. White fulfilled prophecies, and the first site that came up was ellenwhite.info. It has a page listing 14 predictions that the authors of the site point to as having been fulfilled, and we'll have a link to the page so that you can read all of them for yourself. 
In reviewing these 14 predictions, though, it struck me that they were quite weak from an evidential perspective. Uh, For example, the page claimed that the September 11th attacks were allegedly predicted by Ellen. We discussed 9-11 in episodes 171 and 172, so you can go back and listen to those for our discussion of what happened and the different theories about it. But here's the prophecy that the authors of the website suggested pointed to 9-11. On one occasion, when in New York City, I was in the night season called upon to behold buildings rising story after story toward heaven. These buildings were warranted to be fireproof, and they were erected to glorify the owners and builders. Higher and still higher, these buildings rose, and in them the most costly material was used. The scene that next passed before me was an alarm of fire. Men looked at the lofty and supposedly fireproof buildings and said, They are perfectly safe, but these buildings were consumed as if made of pitch. The fire engines could do nothing to save the destruction. The firemen were unable to operate their engines. I should point out that in Ellen's lifetime, many buildings were made of wood, and they used, they also had a lot of wood inside them for walls and flooring and such. As a result, buildings regularly caught fire and burned down, in part because people were still using flame as a source of light before the introduction of electrical lighting and good, safe electrical wiring systems. So when people started making tall buildings out of concrete with floors and walls that were also made of concrete, it was a big deal. And they were touted as being fireproof buildings. In fact, here's a passage from the story, A Hero in Homespun, or The Life Struggle of Hezekiah Hayloft, from the Canadian humorist Stephen Leacock's 1911 book, Nonsense Novels. Hezekiah, his eyes glittering with the mania of crime, crammed his pockets with gold pieces. There was a roar and hubbub in the street below. The police, Hezekiah muttered. I must set fire to the house and escape in the confusion. He struck a safety match and held it to the leg of the table. It was a fireproof table and refused to burn. He held it to the door. The door was fireproof. He applied it to the bookcase. He ran the match along the books. They were all fireproof. Everything was fireproof. Frenzied with rage, he tore off his celluloid collar and set fire to it. He waved it above his head. Great tongues of flames swept from the windows. Fire! Fire! was the cry. Hezekiah rushed to the door and threw the blazing collar down the elevator shaft. In a moment, the iron elevator with its steel ropes burst into a massive flame. Then the brass fittings of the door took fire, and in a moment, the cement floor of the elevator was one roaring mass of flame. Great columns of smoke burst from the building. Now, Stephen Leacock is an awesome humorist, and I highly recommend his book Nonsense Novels and his other works. This book came out in 1911, just four years before Ellen's death, and the joke in this passage is that everything that ought to burn, like tables, doors, bookcases, and books, are all fireproof whereas the things that shouldn't burn, like an iron elevator with steel ropes, the brass fittings on the door, and the cement floor, actually do burn. So Leacock is being deliberately absurd. But the fact that he's joking about what is and isn't fireproof in a building gives you a sense of how impressive the idea of fireproof buildings was at the time. How well does Ellen's prediction fit the events of 9-11? Not well. First, while she said she had this dream in New York City, it isn't stated in the vision that the buildings she saw were in the city. That's 
ambiguous, though that's a minor point. Second, she does not mention airplanes slamming into the buildings, which is what happened on 9-11. Instead, these buildings apparently catch fire in an entirely normal way. Third, she says that the buildings were consumed as if made of pitch. Pitch is a petroleum product that you use to make torches. So saying that the buildings burned like they were made of pitch suggests that they were burning all up and down their length, like the part of a torch that's covered in pitch. But that's not what happened on 9-11. The Twin Towers were fireproof, being made of concrete, steel, and glass. It wasn't the buildings that burned. It was the jet fuel, paper, and office furniture in them. And they didn't burn all up and down their length. The fire occupied a few of the upper stories, but it didn't go all up and down the structures. Instead, once the steel supports had been weakened by the high temperatures, the floors where the fire was could no longer support the weight of the floors above them, and they collapsed, causing a cascading reaction where the buildings pancaked down by the progressively greater weight being put on each floor. So the details of Ellen's vision don't fit the 1911 attacks. Ellen appears to just be predicting some allegedly fireproof buildings catching on fire for normal reasons and then burning to the ground. She's not predicting a terrorist attack in which the upper floors catch fire and then the buildings collapse due to their weight. The people at ellenwhite.info are really stretching things to claim this is a successful prediction of 9-11. And frankly, the same is true of the other 13 predictions that they go on to list as having been fulfilled after this one. We won't take the time to go through them individually, but you can read about them at the links that we'll have. And uh, for reasons that vary from one prediction to another, they're all weak. So I haven't been able to come up with any strong prophetic hits for Ellen. Nothing that goes beyond either superficial resemblance or random chance. What about the flip side? If she doesn't have strong prophetic hits, does she have strong prophetic misses? Well, in 1856, uh, so 12 years after the Great Disappointment of 1844, Ellen was at a conference of Adventists, and she had a vision in which an angel spoke to her about the people at the conference. She wrote, I was shown the company present at the conference, said the angel, some food for worms, some subjects of the seven last plagues. Some will be alive and remain upon the earth to be translated at the coming of Jesus. So Ellen said that the angel declared that the people at the conference fell into three categories. Some of them would be food for worms, meaning that they would die before the second coming. Some would go through the seven last plagues, which might also kill them. And some would remain alive at the second coming. Well, 1856 was over 160 years ago. And all of the people at that conference are now dead. All of them ended up, in the angels' words, as food for worms. None of them went through the seven last plagues, and none of them were to survive until the second coming. So this looks like a serious prophetic miss. Now, Deuteronomy 18, verses 21 and 22, says that if a prophet makes a prediction and it doesn't come true, that this is something the prophet has spoken presumptuously, and you need not be afraid of the prophet. How do Adventists respond to the fact that the seven last plagues and the second coming 
didn't happen before all of the people at the 1856 conference died. Basically, they appeal to the idea of conditional prophecy. One of the things you find when you study biblical prophecy is that it is often conditional. It often promises blessings to encourage people to behave the way they should, and it often promises curses when they've done wrong. But these things can change depending on how the recipients of the prophecy respond. And the prophet Jeremiah is explicit about this. In Jeremiah chapter 18, God says, If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will repent of the evil that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will repent of the good which I intended to do to it. So Adventists are right that prophecy is often conditional. But notice that it's the actions of the recipients of the prophecy that determine what happens. If righteous men who were promised a blessing turn from God and fall into sin, then they forfeit the blessing. And if wicked men who God warned shape up, then he will cancel the curse against them. We see an example of this in the book of Jonah. God sends Jonah to tell the people of the city of Nineveh that they're doomed. But when they hear Jonah's message, they all repent. And so God cancels the doom on their city because they've now shaped up. So this kind of thing does happen with prophecy. But in order to apply this principle to Ellen's 1856 prediction, we would have to infer something really remarkable. If the arrival of the seven last plagues and the second coming were originally scheduled to occur during the lifetime of the people at the 1856 conference, and if that didn't happen, then we would need to infer that the 1856 conference attendees behaved in such a way that God rescheduled the seven last plagues and the second coming because of this tiny number of people at one conference. I find that very hard to believe. The plagues of the last day and the second coming are major world events that will affect billions of people, given the current world population, and even in 1856, there were more than a billion people alive, millions and millions of whom were followers of Christ. By contrast, there were only a tiny handful of Adventists at the time. The movement wouldn't even be organized into a denomination until 1863, seven years later. So are we really expected to believe that the seven last plagues and the second coming were all set to go, and then the tiny number of attendees at an Adventist conference in 1856 acted in such a way that God decided to reschedule the apocalypse and let all these people become worm food instead of surviving until the second coming? I find that extremely difficult to believe. The prediction was not fulfilled, and the explanation for why it wasn't fulfilled doesn't seem credible. That's an explanation of a failed prediction, but Ellen also claimed that her writings were inspired. Are there reasons one might be skeptical of this claim? You'll recall from the last episode that it wasn't just her visions that Ellen claimed to have received from God. Instead, she claimed a gift of inspiration that kept her writings in general from being just her own opinion. And this applied to anything that concerned a matter of faith or morals, including warnings that she gave to people. 
Well, in her writings, she gives some warnings that are scientifically problematic. One of these concerns phrenology. Now, that's a term many people may not know. What's phrenology? Phrenology was an idea in scientific circles in the 19th century. The basic idea was that there are different parts of your brain that are responsible for different mental functions, and that's quite true. For example, the visual cortex, the part of the brain that lets you process visual information, is located at the back of the cerebral cortex at the back of your head. Um, phrenology also claimed that the different parts of the brain worked like muscles. So if you used one part of your brain a lot, it would be bigger. And if you didn't use it a lot, it would atrophy and get smaller. Scientifically, this is more problematic than the first claim, but there have been some studies of the visual cortices of blind people that suggest that they are at least slightly smaller than those of sighted people. Phrenology's third and most practical claim was that the shape of your brain will determine the shape of your skull, such that if you use one of the parts of your brain a lot, it will result in a bump on your skull, on the part of your skull that's above that part of the brain. This meant that you could infer which parts of people's brains they used by examining the bumps on their heads. And that would let you determine their character and personality traits. So people who were angry and violent would have a bump in one place. Uh, people who, were who had a passionate, amorous disposition would have a bump in another place. Uh, people who were conscientious would have a bump in another place, and so on. So phrenologists would feel or measure the bumps on your head, give you a description of your personality based on the bumps, and then give you advice about how you could best conduct yourself in light of the tendencies that the bumps on your head had revealed. How does modern science regard phrenology? It regards it as a pseudoscience. Uh, while phrenology was right that the brain has different regions that it uses in performing functions, and maybe a little right that the functions you perform result in slightly bigger areas performing them due to extra neurons forming in those areas, Phrenology was wrong about this resulting in you having bumps on your head over those areas. The, uh, for one thing, this, the variations in size are just too small. And for another, our brains are surrounded by three layers of tissue known as the meninges. The top layer is known as the dura mater. The layer under that is known as the arachnoid. Under that is a liquid known as cerebrospinal fluid. And under that is a layer called the pia mater. And only after that do we come to the brain itself. So all of these things, the skull, the three layers of the meninges, the cerebrospinal fluid, protect your and cushion your brain. They're shock absorbers so that you don't damage your brain every time you bump your head on something. And you have to get pretty hit pretty hard as a result in order to get a concussion. Consequently, even if your visual cortex were slightly larger than that of a blind person, it won't produce a bump on the back of your skull because your visual cortex is not in contact with your skull. It's surrounded by three layers of shock absorbers made out of tissue, the meninges, as well as another layer of liquid shock absorber, the cerebrospinal fluid, and then there's the bone that your skull is made of. So phrenology was fundamentally mistaken in its third premise, and you can't determine a person's personality traits by reading the bumps on their heads. Also, 
the phrenologists were wrong about where the brain tends to carry out certain functions. I mean, they made maps of what parts of the brain were supposed to be correlated with what functions, and these maps were simply mistaken. I mean, for example, as we mentioned, the visual cortex is at the back of your head, but the phrenologists didn't identify that area as having to do with vision. Instead, they associated it with a trait called philoprogenitiveness, which is a fancy Greek-inspired way of saying the tendency to produce children. And just below this was an area they associated with a trait that they called amativeness, which, by which they meant amorousness, which is obviously associated with having children. So if you had a bump over your visual cortex, phrenologists would say that you had the kind of passionate, amorous nature that would lead you to either get pregnant or get women pregnant, which is just completely not what that part of the brain does. Yeah. So if modern science doesn't look kindly on phrenology, how did Ellen White regard it? Well, her attitude was mixed. On the one hand, she went to phrenologists. Uh, she apparently was phrenologically examined herself. She had phrenological readings for her two surviving sons, and she was quite pleased with what the doctor told her about their personalities and also about the advice he gave them. She thought these were good readings. On the other hand, she thought that some people were way too into phrenology and that the devil was using this to distract them from God. So she believed in phrenology, but she also believed that it could be abused. She wrote, Phrenology and mesmerism are very much exalted today. They are good in their place, but they are seized upon by Satan as his most powerful agents to deceive and destroy souls. So in her supposedly inspired writings, we find Ellen endorsing a pseudoscience as being good in its place, even though that's a limited place, and she is giving a moral warning, making this a matter of faith and morals. She's warning against abusing phrenology, lest the devil destroy you. So that's quite problematic. Even more problematic is another warning she gives based on phrenological principles. Basically, she said that it is dangerous for women to wear a wig. Ellen wrote, The artificial hair and pads covering the base of the brain heat and excite the spinal nerves centering in the brain. The head should ever be kept cool. The heat caused by these artificials induces the blood to the brain. The action of the blood upon the lower animal organs of the brain causes unnatural activity tends to recklessness and morals and the mind and heart is in danger of being corrupted. As the animal organs are excited and strengthened, the moral are enfeebled. The moral and intellectual powers of the mind become servants to the animal. In consequence of the brain being congested, its nerves lose their healthy action and take on morbid conditions, making it almost impossible to arouse the moral sensibilities. Such lose their power to discern sacred things. The unnatural heat caused by these artificial deformities about the head induces the blood to the brain, producing congestion, and causing the natural hair to fall off, producing baldness. Thus, the natural is sacrificed to the artificial. Many have lost their reason and become hopelessly insane by following this deforming fashion. Yet the slaves to fashion will continue to thus dress their heads and suffer horrible disease and premature death rather than be out of fashion. You'll recall that 
the back of the cerebrum is the visual cortex, and under that is the cerebellum, which helps you control your balance and coordination. But phrenologists thought that these parts of the head were associated with the tendency to be passionate and have children. So Ellen said that if you wear a wig, blood will rush to the base of your brain. The blood will cause congestion in this region. You will lose your moral sensibilities and your animal passions will take over, which is 19th century code for you'll become sexually immoral. Your natural hair will fall out. You will go hopelessly insane, in her words. You will suffer horrible disease, in her words, and you'll experience premature death. Needless to say, these health warnings about the dangers of wearing a wig are totally inaccurate from a scientific perspective. But Ellen is presenting them to her followers as a moral warning, a matter of faith and morals, meaning that they're supposed to be divinely inspired and inerrant. Did Ellen endorse other scientifically problematic ideas in a context of faith and morals? One of them is found in her discussion of what caused the Great Flood. Uh, we discussed the Great Flood in episodes 175 and 176, so you can go back and listen to those for our discussion of it. But here is what Ellen said. If there was one sin above another which called for the destruction of the race by the flood, it was the base crime of amalgamation of man and beast, which defaced the image of God and caused confusion everywhere. God purposed to destroy by a flood that powerful, long-lived race that had corrupted their ways before him. He would not suffer them to live out the days of their natural life, which would be hundreds of years. It was only a few generations back when Adam had access to that tree, which was to prolong life. After his disobedience, he was not suffered to eat of the tree of life and perpetuate a life of sin. In order for man to possess an endless life, he must continue to eat of the fruit of the tree of life. Deprived of that tree, his life would gradually wear out. Now, the thing I'm interested in here is not her discussion of Adam and Eve and the preternaturally long lifespans of the patriarchs before the flood. We talked about those lifespans back in episode 119, which was part one of our discussion of the young earth. And you can go back and listen to that. But suffice it to say that the evidence is that these lifespans are a literary device to show the greatness of the ancients, and they're not meant to be taken literally. But that's not what interests me at the moment. The thing to note is that Ellen said that the main sin causing the flood was the base crime of amalgamation of man and beast, which defaced the image of God. Amalgamation refers to mixing or blending two things together, like bronze is a metal that's an amalgamation of copper and tin, and brass is a metal that's an amalgamation of copper and zinc. So Ellen was saying that before the flood, men and animals amalgamated. They bred together, producing animal-human hybrids, and this defaced the image of God in man, bringing on the flood. She also said that animal-human hybrids were made again after the flood, writing, Every species of animal which God had created were preserved in the ark. The confused species which God did not create, which were the result of amalgamation, were destroyed by the flood. Since the flood, there has been amalgamation of man and beast, as may be seen in the almost endless varieties of species of animals and in certain races of men. So some races of men today are animal-human hybrids, according to Ellen. Isn't one of the common definitions of a species is that it's a group of organisms that can mate together? 
Would it be even possible for a human to mate with another species? Defining a species by what animals in a population can successfully breed with each other is a good general definition, but it isn't absolute. Sometimes different species like lions and tigers or horses and donkeys can breed and bear offspring, but the offspring is usually infertile. Uh, that's the case with mules, for example, which are the offspring of a male donkey and a female horse. Mules are usually infertile. So are male ligers, which are the offspring of a male lion and a female tiger. If a liger is a male, it's also infertile. So it would be unlikely that even if two species are able to breed, that the offspring would be fertile enough and able to start a new amalgamated race or species. What about humans? Could they breed with anything besides other humans? This has not been scientifically determined, but if it were possible, it would have to be with one of our closest relatives. Uh, the best bet would be chimpanzees, which are our closest relatives. And the hypothetical offspring of a human and a chimp is called a human Z. We may discuss human Zs in a future episode, and yes, I know this is nightmare science and nobody should be attempting it, but there have been attempts to produce human Zs, and so far, nobody's done it. There were attempts in the 1920s in the Soviet Union and in the 1960s in China and by an American one in 2019, but none of these efforts resulted in the birth of a human Z. The Soviet experiments didn't work, uh, the chimp in the Chinese experiments died, and the embryos created by the American team were killed after a few weeks, so we don't know if they could have survived to birth, much less whether they would have survived to adulthood and been fertile so that they could go on to start a new amalgamated race. So what do you make of Ellen's claim about humans amalgamating with animals? I think it's extremely unlikely. Uh, the only animals that would even be conceivable to do that with would be our closest relatives like chimpanzees, maybe a few of the other great apes, but it doesn't sound like that's what Ellen is talking about. She just says animals, and the vast majority of animal species are not closely related to us at all, and hybrids would be completely impossible. When it comes to human Zs or other great ape-type hybrids, so far nobody's shown that they're possible, and even if they were, it's unlikely that they would be fertile and able to start new races. And when we look at the genetic studies that have been done of the different uh, races of humanity today, none of them indicate hybridization with something as distant as a chimpanzee. They may show evidence of breeding with other groups of humans, like Neanderthals or Denisovans, but not hybridization with animals. So I think Ellen is just wrong about this. So before we get into uh, other of her predictions, let's take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Andrew M., Alaska Tom, Pat F., Steve S., and Dante V. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fairvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O-Law.com. And by... 
Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at DeliverContacts.com. We've seen Ellen making a false prediction about when the world would end, and we've seen her endorsing scientifically false ideas in her allegedly inspired writings. Are there other reasons to be suspicious of her as a prophet? Last episode, we discussed a vision of other planets that Ellen had. The vision occurred in 1846, and present for this vision was a retired sea captain named Joseph Bates, who was very interested in astronomy. During the vision, Ellen saw a planet that had rosy-tinted belts, in her words, uh, across its surface, and she also said it had four moons. And she then saw a belted, ringed planet with seven moons. Upon hearing these descriptions, Captain Bates concluded that she was seeing Jupiter and Saturn. Jupiter has belts on its surface, and in the 19th century, it was thought to have four moons that had been discovered by Galileo. They're called the Galilean satellites. Saturn also has a banded surface, and it's famous for its rings. And at the time of the vision in 1846, it was believed to have seven moons, although an eighth moon was discovered two years later in 1848. In the 20th century, once we sent probes out there, we discovered that both Jupiter and Saturn have many more moons than that. Currently, Jupiter is known to have at least 80 moons, and Saturn is known to have at least 83. But four and seven were what were known at the time of the vision in 1846. Does the fact that Ellen missed so many of the moons bother you? No, not really. In the first place, just because you're looking at a planet doesn't mean you see all of its moons. Uh, some may be hidden behind it or too small or too far away for you to recognize them as a moon rather than a star. More fundamentally, God doesn't give people visions in order to give them complete inventories of scientific facts. He gives them visions to strengthen people's faith and reporting what was known about these planets under the science of 1846 would strengthen Captain Bates's faith. In fact, that seems to be one of the principal purposes of this vision. Ellen did not normally receive visions of other worlds. Uh, the presence of the astronomically inclined Captain Bates was unusual, and at that time, he doubted that Ellen was receiving genuine visions, so he needed confirmation of her powers. In his book, Messenger of the Lord, Adventist Herbert Douglas writes, Obviously, what Bates heard corresponded to his knowledge of what telescopes showed in 1846. Almost certainly, his vision was given in Bates's presence to give him added confidence in Ellen White's ministry. If she had mentioned the number of moons that modern telescopes reveal, it seems clear that Bates's doubts about Ellen's visions would have been confirmed. And that much is reasonable. I mean, if she said, okay, I, I'm seeing a ringed planet, and he's thinking, oh, that's Saturn, and then she says, and it's got 83 moons, he's going to go, okay, this is, this is wrong, you know, based on the science of their day. So I can see God giving someone a limited vision based on what was known in their own day to give someone a sign that a person like Ellen was in touch with God. Then what about this do you find unreasonable? Well, two things. First, there were other things that Ellen said about these planets. Uh, Ellen reported that the planet with the four moons, which was apparently Jupiter, was inhabited by a race of people who were of all sizes, noble, majestic, and lovely, and that these people had never fallen into sin. 
She also said this planet had green grass. Then, on the planet with the seven moons, which was apparently Saturn, she met the biblical patriarch Enoch, who was just visiting the planet. Also, according to a woman named Mrs. Truesdale, who was present for the vision, Ellen also said this about the planet. The inhabitants are a tall, majestic people, so unlike the inhabitants of Earth, sin has never entered here. So this planet also was reported to be inhabited by people, a tall and unfallen race in this case. But we now know that neither Jupiter nor Saturn are inhabited by people, nor do they have green grass. They are gas giants. And while it's not impossible that they have life forms in their clouds, these life forms would not be people. So this looks like more prophetic misses, allegedly in a vision from God. Well, what about the fact that Ellen didn't name these planets as Jupiter and Saturn? Adventists correctly point that out. She didn't name them. They were named by Captain Bates. But as Herbert Douglas observed, this vision was apparently to bolster Captain Bates's faith in her visions. And that would require the planets to be in our own solar system, since we didn't start discovering planets in other solar systems until 1992, 146 years later. Understood in its faith-affirming context, the planets would have to be ones in our own solar system because those were the only ones that we and Captain Bates knew about at the time. So the banded planet with the four moons, I mean, it doesn't help if these are in some other solar system and he has no way of identifying them. That's not going to strengthen his faith. So the banded planet with the four moons and the banded ringed planet with seven moons would be Jupiter and Saturn. But Jupiter and Saturn don't have people living on them since they're gas giants. I thus think that the planets were Jupiter and Saturn, and that the reports of their unfallen inhabitants were prophetic misses. You said that there was a second factor that concerned you about this experience. What was that? You'll recall that earlier we discussed how Ellen's visions tended to confirm things that people already believed. In fact, people in her own day accused her of having revelations that confirmed what her husband said or what other people had told her. Well, that may have happened in this case. In his book, Ellen G. White, A Psychobiography, Stephen Daly writes and describes the situation that Ellen and her husband were in at the time. Even before she married James, Ellen seemed very aware of the power that her visions held over believers. But the problem came when believers weren't convinced or began to doubt the visions. After James and Ellen were married, they continued to travel to the churches promoting the visions but they were destitute, living in poverty, and had to deal with an increasing number of believers who questioned or doubted Ellen's visions. What they desperately needed was a wealthy, mature, highly respected leader in the movement who would take their side and embrace the visions. Such a man was Joseph Bates, a wealthy, retired ship captain who embraced the Millerite message and became a committed health reformer and showed an interest in early Adventism. But unfortunately, from the Whites' perspective, was not fully convinced about the legitimacy of Ellen's visions. The Whites had been trying to convince Bates that Ellen was the prophetic chosen one by God, but the wise old sea captain was not willing to jump on their bandwagon. He had remained uncommitted about the visions, even though he was sympathetic to their cause. So, for the only time in her entire life, Ellen just happened to receive a detailed vision about astronomy and the heavens that evening. 
Now, as a woman whose formal education stopped when she was nine years old, Ellen didn't have significant knowledge of astronomy, and that would prove an asset in convincing Captain Bates that she had been given a vision of other planets that he knew about. Stephen Daly writes, After her vision was over, Joseph Bates questioned her about what she was shown, and she explicitly denied having ever read or been taught anything about the subject. Even though Bates had written a tract, the opening heavens, that Ellen had obviously read. So Bates had written an astronomy tract that Daly thinks Ellen read and that could have given her the information used in the vision. And even if she hadn't read Bates's tract, she could have looked up the information elsewhere based on what was known to the science of the day and then manufactured this vision to convince Bates. Ellen and her husband needed support from a wealthy, respected Adventist, and Captain Bates was such an individual. As Adventist, her, as Adventist Herbert Douglas states, the purpose of the vision was to convince Bates. It was to shore up his faith in Ellen as a prophetess. And though her formal education wouldn't have given her the knowledge reported in the vision, Captain Bates had written a tract that she could have used, and even if she didn't use it, she could have looked up the information elsewhere. Ellen gave Bates just enough detail based on what was known in 1846 to convince him that she was seeing planets known to Captain Bates. Those planets thus should be understood as Jupiter and Saturn. But what Ellen reported about the people of these planets contradicts what we know now. So you can see why I'm concerned. This looks like a fraud perpetrated on Captain Bates by Ellen and her husband. Do we have other evidence that Ellen perpetrated hoaxes? This is a charge that I'm very reluctant to make. Uh, in fact, when I started writing the drafts of these episodes, I was initially dismissive of the possibility of hoaxing going on in this case. Just because someone isn't a genuine prophet doesn't mean that they're pulling off a deliberate hoax and committing conscious fraud. And I didn't at the time have any evidence of hoaxing. But then I started looking into the question and I began to find more evidence. If you do any research at all into Ellen White, one of the charges that you'll run into is that she plagiarized her works, meaning that she copied material from other people and included it in her own writings without giving them proper credit. Initially, I wasn't very interested in this charge. In the first place, in the ancient world, like when the Bible was being written, there weren't any intellectual property laws, and biblical authors could quote and allude to each other freely without any accusations of impropriety. For example, Isaiah 11.9 contains a prophecy that one day, The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And similarly, Habakkuk 2.14 contains the prophecy, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. While these two passages aren't expressed in exactly the same language word for word, they do express the same idea, and either Isaiah or Habakkuk was quoting from the other, or they were both quoting from another lost source that represents a thought that was more widespread among the prophets. Either way, there were no copyright laws in this period, and this kind of borrowing was considered legitimate. What about the 19th century when Ellen lived? There were copyright laws then, and copying another person's work without permission or attribution was considered plagiarism. Yes, but 
man's laws and customs are not God's laws and customs. So even if Ellen committed something that was considered plagiarism legally in the 19th century, or even today for that matter, it wouldn't be a knockdown conclusive argument against her. Also, a lot of people commit plagiarism without realizing it. Because I'm a writer, I have a better grasp of intellectual property law than most non-lawyers, and I'm sensitive to it when I see people plagiarizing me, which does sometimes happen. On occasion, I've even gone to other apologists and say, said, you know that argument you're using? Well, I came up with that. I originated that, and I'd appreciate it if you gave me credit, at least when you use it in print. And they've been happy to do that and didn't even remember where they had gotten the argument. So I'm personally rather lenient on plagiarism, at least when it comes to non-specialists. If a professional writer, academic, or journalist are committing it, though, that's one thing. But lots of people don't realize it when they're plagiarizing, in part because the standards of what counts as plagiarizing vary, and there's no single bright-line test for when you're doing it. So I tend to cut non-specialists slack and... As a woman whose formal education ended when she was nine years old, Ellen was a non-specialist. How have Seventh-day Adventists responded to these charges? According to the Ellen G. White Encyclopedia published by the White Estate, The Seventh-day Adventist Church has repeatedly addressed these accusations. In 1951, Frances D. Nichols' book, Ellen G. White and Her Critics, gave a synopsis of the charges and provided answers that satisfied the membership for many years. But renewed and intensified charges of plagiarism in the 1970s and early 1980s led the church to begin an extensive study into Ellen White's borrowing of external material in the production of her works. At the same time, a legal opinion was sought, and the charge that Ellen White plagiarized her books was reviewed by attorney Vincent L. Remick. Remick came back with an opinion that Ellen didn't technically commit plagiarism. In part, he said that was because, Nowhere have we found the books of Ellen G. White to be virtually the same plan and character throughout as those of her predecessors. Nor have we found, or have critics made reference to, any intention of Ellen White to supersede other authors in the market with the same class of readers and purchasers. She invariably introduced considerable new matter to that which she borrowed, going far beyond mere colorable deviations, and in effect created an altogether new literary work. Remick said that in 1981, and I'm not at all sure that the same view would be taken today by an unbiased attorney. It isn't necessary to copy the entire plan of someone in order to commit plagiarism. Uh, You don't have to intend to supersede other authors with the same class of readers and purchasers, and you can create a new literary work that nevertheless plagiarizes people. You don't have to copy them wholesale. Just copying passages can be sufficient, and you don't even have to copy the passages word for word, just having the same general flow of thought in a passage or a notable quantity of words and phrases in common can be enough for plagiarism. So I'm not sure that Ramik's judgment would stand today. By today's standards, did Ellen White commit plagiarism? Yes. And the thing that convinced me of this was watching a video that we'll have a link to so that you can watch it too. 
In the video, a former Adventist uses a split-screen technique where he shows Ellen White's writings on one side of the screen and the source that she's copying from on the other side of the screen. He uses color highlights to let you match the text that Ellen is quoting with what she wrote. And the video is almost an hour long, and so the gentleman gives tons of examples. And it's really easy to see that although Ellen is adapting what she's copying, so she's not always reproducing it word for word, she is plagiarizing by modern standards, and she's doing so really extensively. Still, that's not a proof by itself that she was doing anything wrong. If she was just totally unfamiliar with the concept of plagiarism, she could be doing this innocently. Is there evidence that she knew she was doing something wrong? Yes. Uh, Stephen Daly writes, Adventist apologists who have argued that plagiarism wasn't illegal in Ellen's day, but a common practice, are discredited by the fact that Coney Bear and Housen, major publishers in the 19th century, threatened to sue Ellen's Adventist publisher for copyright infringement based on her extensive plagiarism of their book, Life and Epistles of the Apostle Paul, 1855, in her book, Sketches from the Life of Paul, 1883. The denomination immediately ceased publishing and selling Ellen's book in response to this lawsuit and didn't publish it again until the copyright expired. So Ellen's publisher got a cease and desist letter from another publisher who threatened to sue them for copyright infringement due to extensive plagiarism. They immediately desisted, realizing that the case had merit, and they didn't republish Ellen's sketches from the life of St. Paul again until after the copyright on the original book had lapsed and it went into the public domain. Now, this event happened in the 1880s when Ellen was still alive, and she would have known about this because, at a minimum, her publisher would have informed her that they were taking the book out of print. I mean, why isn't this showing up on my royalty statements anymore? You know, that's a question an author's going to ask. So the publisher would have, at a minimum, said, we need to take this out of print, and here's why, thus alerting her to the fact that she was doing something that she shouldn't have. And it wasn't just her publisher who was telling Ellen that she was doing something she shouldn't. Ellen also had two literary assistants who helped her prepare her manuscripts, and they were telling her the same thing. One of them was a woman named Marion Davis, and the other was a woman named Fanny Bolton. Because they helped her make her books, Ellen referred to them as her bookmakers. Marion had originally been a teacher, and Fanny had originally been a journalist, they both knew how to recognize plagiarism, and especially Fanny. And they both told Ellen about the problems with what she was doing. They also both have very dramatic stories, which are related in Stephen Daly's book, so I want to give him credit up front for the material we're about to cover. No plagiarism here. So what happened when Marion and Fanny shared their concerns with Ellen? Marion Davis uh, started working for her first, and one of the problems that she came to Ellen and her son Willie with was the fact that the handwritten manuscript she was being given sometimes included other people's words in quotation marks, and sometimes they didn't. Sometimes they just quoted other people without putting quotation marks around them, making it seem like Ellen had written those words. The solution that the Whites came up with was not to use quotation marks at all when quoting other writers. 
and they justified this on several grounds. First, it would take too long for Ellen to properly document each source. Second, the earth is the Lord's. And third, every good gift comes from God. So since God owns everything and gives people gifts, the intellectual labor of other people was God's gift to Ellen. And she could take other people's words and ideas and present them as her own without giving other people proper credit. Stephen Daly argues, This kind of thinking can justify stealing your neighbor's car or motorhome. Yeah, the earth is the Lord's and every good gift comes from God. So that sweet ride my neighbor has, that's his gift to me. Now, Ellen did agree to include in her writings a general acknowledgement that she was taking material from other people and not using quotation marks, but she didn't credit people by name in the introduction. I mean, she didn't say who deserves credit for some of the ideas in this book, and she didn't give the reader a way of telling what was coming from her and allegedly from God and what was coming from other authors. Still, this was better than no acknowledgement of indebtedness to others at all. But Marion was still deeply disturbed by what Ellen was doing. In his 1919 book, The Life of Mrs. E.G. White, former Adventist Dudley Canwright describes Marion's condition this way. She was one day heard moaning in her room. Going in, another worker inquired the cause of her trouble. Miss Davis replied, I wish I could die. I wish I could die. Why, what is the matter? asked the other. Oh, Stavis said, this terrible plagiarism. To help herself deal with the anguish she was going through, Marion discussed the situation with a physician named Charles Stewart. And while keeping Marion anonymous, Stewart later wrote to Ellen, telling her, I am informed by a very trustworthy source that it was very difficult to arrange the matter for your books in such a way as to prevent the readers from detecting that many of the ideas had been taken from other authors. Later, when Fanny Bolton came to work for Ellen, she also had a rude awakening. In 1982, the Ellen G. White estate published a collection of primary source documents called the Fanny Bolton Story. One of them was a letter that Fanny wrote in 1914, in which she said, I became an Adventist in Chicago under the labors of Elder G.B. Starr and was very zealous for what is called present truth. I truly believed it was the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, and lived up to the testimonies with all faithfulness, discarding meat, butter, fish, fowl, and the supper meal, believing that, as the testimonies say, no meat eater will be translated. I had been faithfully instructed by Elder Starr that the testimonies came, as they were written from God, that, though Sister White was an illiterate woman, she had been so educated by the Lord that she wrote in the style of her books, supposedly hers. I had been taught that oysters were abominable in God's sight, etc. I met Sister White at a camp meeting, and as I was reporting for the papers, it fell to my lot to edit her sermons. There were illiteracy in lack of logic, mixed metaphors, lack of connections and climax, and were marked with awkward sentences, platitudes, repetition, and everything that goes to make good literary productions was lacking. But I thought her pen perhaps would be so guided that these weaknesses would not be seen. She was pleased with the way I made her sermons over for the press and wished me in her employ. I had several good openings for original writing at the time, which would have been more to my taste, but waved everything to go with the prophet. I was only a simple-hearted girl then with curls down my back and had been brought up in a truly spiritual home life 
and had no idea of duplicity in this, much less in those I truly believed to be the messengers of God. I left to go with Sister White on the very day when my brother was to be married. At the depot, Sister White was not with her party, so Elder Starr hunted about till he found her behind a screen in the restaurant, very gratified in eating big, white, raw oysters with vinegar, pepper, and salt. I was overwhelmed by this inconsistency and dumb with horror. Elder Starr hurried me out and made all sorts of excuses and justifications of Sister White's action. Yet, I kept thinking in my heart, what does it mean? What has God said? How does she dare eat these abominations? On the cars out to California, W.C. White came into the train with a great thick piece of bloody beef steak spread out on a brown paper, and he bore it through the tourist car on his own two hands. Sarah McIntyre, who is now with Sister White as her attendant, cooked it on a small oil stove, and everyone ate of it except myself and Marion Davis, who I found out afterwards was more the author of the books purported to be Sister White's than she was herself. This was a big deal to Fanny because for years Ellen had been preaching an allegedly divinely inspired diet of vegetarianism, despite the fact that God gave explicit permission to eat meat in the Bible after the flood and confirmed it in numerous later places, including the fact that Jesus himself ate the Passover lamb and the fact that Mark's gospel contains the statement that Jesus declared all foods clean. So it was a shock to find the prophetess and her associates eating meat, including the prophet herself eating oysters, which were unclean under Jewish law. Elder Starr later denied the oyster and beef-eating incidents ever happened, so we have a conflict between what Fanny said and what he said. Fanny also reported having a rude awakening concerning the plagiarism, as well as the secretiveness of Ellen's work. A later document in the Fanny Bolton story reports that Fanny also related the following. After reaching Healdsburg, Sister Fanny was given a quantity of rather mussy manuscript to prepare for the press. It needed much working over. She did the work carefully and satisfactorily. One day, she and Sister White were taking dinner together at Elder McClure's, and Elder McClure spoke of the number of Sister White's workers and asked what their work was. He asked what Marion Davis's work was. Sister White gave a half-evasive answer. Then he asked, and Sister Fanny, what does she do? Sister White replied, she is here, she can speak for herself. Thus invited, Sister Fanny innocently told exactly what work she was doing. Nothing was said regarding it at the time, but a few days later, Ellen's son, Elder W.C. White, came to her and began talking in a roundabout way that made her wonder what he was driving at. At last he said, Fanny, Mother is displeased at you for what you said at Elder McClure's. Sister Fanny was surprised at this and told of the conversation that led up to it and of Sister White's invitation to her to tell. Elder White said, well, tell me just what your work is. She took some manuscript that she'd been working on and explained how she had rearranged and readjusted it, etc. And he said, yes, that's Right. You have the correct idea, and your work is proving very satisfactory, but it is best that you say nothing about it to anyone. She wondered why there was need of such secrecy in the Lord's work. At one time, she was working on some articles regarding David and Solomon, which did not require as much editing as those on which she had worked. And one day, Marion Davis said to her, Have you compared the chronology of those articles? You will want to be careful about that. She was surprised and said, why, the Lord is a correct historian. Yes, Marion Davis said, but Sister White is not a historian. 
you want to compare it with Edersheim or some other standard writer, preferably Edersheim. Sister Fanny did so, but on opening the book was shocked and astonished to face a paragraph exactly like the one in the articles she was copying, although there was no sign in the articles of its being a quotation. And on turning a page, found a whole page, which in the articles was only changed enough to prevent its being an exact quotation. Immediately, her old trouble with essay stealing at school came back to her, and she went to Marion Davis with troubled questions. Marion Davis tried to assure her that it was all right, that the Lord had a right to use all those things in his work, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. But it did not seem right to Sister Fanny. Fanny later did ghostwriting for Ellen, and she told Dr. Kellogg, the cornflakes guy, the following. I am greatly distressed over this matter, for I feel that I am acting a deceptive part. The people are being deceived about the inspiration of what I write. I feel that it is a great wrong that anything which I write should go out under Sister White's name as an article, especially inspired of God. What I write should go out over my own signature. Then credit would be given where credit belongs. In law, for a person to be convicted of a crime, two elements need to be proved. The first is that an actus reus, or guilty act, has been committed, and the second is that the person who did the act also has a mens rea, or guilty mind, meaning that they knew what they were doing was wrong. Applying this concept analogically to the present situation, the extensive plagiarism may be understood as an actus reus, or guilty act, and the secrecy shown surrounding it may be understood as displaying a mens rea or guilty mind. Now, we're not trying Ellen in a court of law, but you'll recall that one of the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith's negative criteria concerning private revelation is gravely immoral acts committed by the subject or his or her followers when the event occurred or in connection with it. By plagiarizing uh, extensively, uh, plagiarizing published authors and by using unacknowledged ghostwriters and passing their work off as her own, divinely inspired compositions, Ellen committed gravely immoral acts and made her literary assistants, who were her followers, complicit in those acts. And both of her literary assistants suffered uh, greatly in mental health in terms of this there's much more to their stories, and you can read about them in Steve Daly's book. Another of the dicastery's negative criteria when discerning private revelations was this. Evidence of a search for profit or gain strictly connected to the event. And there is evidence for this as well in Ellen's case. When he was alive, James and Ellen made a great deal of money from their efforts, and after James's death, Ellen made even more. Originally, some of Ellen's books were published in fairly inexpensive sets and copies were sold to Adventist churches for their libraries, but allegedly under divine inspiration, Ellen later wrote, The volumes of Spirit of Prophecy and also the testimonies should be introduced into every Sabbath-keeping family, and the brethren should know their value and be urged to read them. It was not the wisest plan to sell those books at a low figure and have only one set in a church. They should be in the library of every family and read again and again. Let them be kept where they can be read by many, and let them be worn out in being read by all the neighbors. Money will be expended for tea, coffee, ribbons, ruffles, and trimmings, and much time and labor spent in preparing the apparel, while the inward work of the heart is neglected. God has caused precious light to be brought out in publication, 
and these should be owned and read by every family. Parents, your children are in danger of going contrary to the light given of heaven, and you should both purchase and read the books, for they will be a blessing to you and yours. You should lend spirit of prophecy to your neighbors and prevail upon them to buy copies for themselves. So not just every church, but every family now should have their own copies of her works. They should spend money on them rather than on other frivolous things, and they should prevail upon their neighbors to buy them too. This looks exactly like a search for profit that is strictly connected to the alleged revelations, since here we have an alleged inspired text telling people to spend money to buy the revelation. So Ellen would definitely fail with regard to this criterion. Did she make much money from her efforts? She did. Ellen and James started out in poverty, but once her writings started being published, they bought a series of homes in different places, including a mansion. Steve Daly explains. In 1881, the Whites purchased a 16-room, three-story, brick Italiante mansion a mile and a half from the center of Battle Creek. This large estate included 30 acres and 200 fruit trees. James forked out $6,000, probably $200,000 to $300,000 in today's real estate values, for the property, which was still a bargain at that time. This was an elaborate mansion, a home reserved for the financial elite. He further writes, Ellen would also buy another personal home for herself while working in Australia. But the topper in the White's real estate portfolio was added in 1900, when Ellen purchased her elegant and exclusive estate in the Napa Valley known as Elmshaven, for the undermarket price of only $5,000. If the estate were sold today, with its beautifully furnished mansion, other buildings, stables, and 74 acres of premium land, it would be priced at a minimum of $10 million. When Ellen purchased the property, it included the mansion, a two-story office building with library and vault, two separate cottage living quarters for staff, and a barn and stable filled with livestock and expensive equipment. This purchase was years after James's death, so Daly asked a very interesting question. Why would a single woman need such an estate? Because Ellen lived as an elite matriarch with a huge staff to meet her every need. Pictures and records of her servants and staff show that they were between 14 and 21 in number and included a personal nurse, Sarah McInturfer, a private cook, a copyist, a seamstress, a number of farmhands, several secretaries, and various other office assistants and office personnel. So, yes, Ellen got rich from her visions, and that is a serious mark against them. It is clear evidence of a search for profit in the situation, especially when coupled with the knowledge of her plagiarism and her attempts to keep it secret, as we discussed earlier. Let's come back to the faith perspective. What should we say about Ellen Gould White here? I don't want to say a lot because I don't really think we need to. One of the things that I found frustrating when researching this episode is that people tend to look at the question of Ellen G. White's prophecies through a doctrinal lens regularly her critics will go after Seventh-day Adventist doctrines that they disagree with. And I acknowledge that that's legitimate in principle. After all, one of the dicastery's negative criteria for private revelations was doctrinal errors attributed to God himself or to the Blessed Virgin Mary or to some saint in their manifestations. 
So, yeah, if you find doctrinal errors in a private revelation, then that means it's false. But the problem with this approach is that it doesn't work between different religious groups. Uh, yes, if you're Catholic and you notice that Ellen's prophecies contain claims that are contrary to the Catholic faith, and they do, then you're going to conclude she's not a genuine prophetess. But if you're not already a Catholic, you won't buy that critique. The same thing goes if you're Protestant or a member of another religious community, and you note that Ellen's allegedly inspired writings contain ideas contrary to your faith. The does-this-person-teach-false-doctrine approach tends to reduce the subject to just a doctrinal fight. And I'm not interested in doing a doctrinal critique of Seventh-day Adventism on Mysterious World. Doctrinal critiques would be straight-out apologetics, and this show is about mysteries, so I won't be doing a doctrinal critique here. Instead, I've wanted to do an investigation that does not presuppose a particular point of view from the faith perspective, and we've largely handled this issue from the reason perspective, which should make it accessible to more people. Ellen did have some quite pointed things to say in criticism of Catholicism, but she also had some good things to say about individual Catholics, and ultimately we don't need to go into the issue of doctrinal disagreements to form a conclusion about whether she was a true prophet. Before we go, what should we say about Ellen White's legacy? She's obviously been hugely influential in the Seventh-day Adventist community, and her religious influence has gone even further through movements that split off from Adventism, like Herbert Armstrong's Worldwide Church of God and the Branch Davidians, who we talked about in episodes 96 and 97 on David Koresh and the Waco Siege, where the Branch Davidians were horribly treated by federal law enforcement. She's also had non-religious influence through the schools and hospitals that Seventh-day Adventists have set up, which have served both Adventists and non-Adventists. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line about Ellen G. White? Ellen White is an interesting woman with a fascinating life story. However, I don't believe that she was a genuine prophetess or that her writings were inspired. I don't think that her prophecies were due to a naturalistic altered state of consciousness like epilepsy, hypnosis, or mental illness. But I do think they had a natural cause. The claimed prophetic hits that she had were weak and can be explained in other ways, and we have notable prophetic misses, like her prediction that the seven last plagues and the second coming would occur during the lifetimes of people attending an Adventist conference in 1856. That clearly did not happen, and while prophecies can be conditional, I don't think it's credible to claim that God would reschedule the seven last plagues and the second coming on the basis of what a tiny number of conference attendees did. Her allegedly inspired writings also uh, base moral warnings on scientifically false matters like the pseudoscience of phrenology and the danger of women wearing wigs and the interbreeding of man and animals. It looks like Ellen's revelations were often shaped by things other people were proposing and that they were sometimes deliberately shaped to achieve personal goals, like her planetary vision for Captain Bates. She borrowed extensively from other people's writings without giving them credit. She often passed off the work of ghostwriters as her own, and she displayed a guilty mind about this, making significant efforts to keep what she was doing, or at least its extent, secret from others. 
And it looks like she was doing this in pursuit of financial gain. While allegedly writing under divine inspiration, she told her followers to buy her books and to urge their neighbors to buy them as well. She grew rich, owning expensive properties worth millions today, and she lived a lavish lifestyle with an extensive personal staff. So, Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listener? We'll have a link to the Ellen G. White Encyclopedia, also Stephen Daly's book, Ellen G. White, A Psychobiography, Ellen's book, Early Writings, the Dicastery's Norms for Judging Apparitions, Ellen's official biography, also information about her vision of other planets, as well as general information about Ellen from Wikipedia and information on prophecy in the Seventh-day Adventist Church the inspiration of her writings, her great controversy theme, where she envisions history as a great controversy between Christ and the devil. Also, information on Seventh-day Adventism, Ellen's first vision, the Adventist neurology professor's response on the epilepsy allegation, and the committee's response on the epilepsy allegation. We'll have a link to ellenwhite.info's page on her reports of fulfilled predictions. Also, information on phrenology, human disease, plagiarism, including that video I mentioned that visually documents the plagiarism for you in a way that's very easy to understand. And also an Adventist review of Stephen Daly's psychobiography, because I want you to be able to have both sides of that. So that's it from us this time. What are your theories about our evaluation of Ellen G. White and her revelations? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world. You can do so in the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord or call our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work they do on this episode of Mysterious World. If you are an audio listener to the podcast, you can check out how the video version of the show works, including all the great work that Oasis Studio 7 does by going to my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. That's youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken. And while you're there, I am trying to grow my channel. We recently passed 30,000 subscribers, so we're trying to make it to 50 now. And I'd really appreciate it if you help us get there by subscribing. So click the subscribe button and also hit the bell notification so that YouTube will actually tell you when one of the videos you have asked to be told about comes out. Also, I want to thank Dom's wife, Melanie, for doing the voice work as Ellen G. White and the other female parts this episode. So, Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next time, we'll be going to 1964 New Mexico and talking about the famous UFO landing case that was witnessed by police officer Lonnie Zamora in Socorro, New Mexico. It's considered one of the best documented UFO landing cases ever, so you'll want to hear all about it. Folks, be sure to share the podcast with your friends and write a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. That helps us grow our community and reach more listeners. You'll find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 230. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. 
Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part through the generous support of Aaron Ferguson Electric and Automation at AaronV.com. A-A-R-O-N-V.com. Making connections for life for your automation and smart home needs in North and Central Florida. And by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the Catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Catholics of Oz. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash oz.